This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, February the 1st, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up, mental health disorder. Reporter Megan Gilmore has been following the story and gives you the updates. McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio is continuing their 2024 prediction series, this time with a focus on health, politics, and education. Content curator Don Dickinson has a preview. And more restaurants are using robots to prepare food. Jenny Bovard shares her opinion on the trend. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. Let's begin the show with the top story of the day, and it's all about housing. Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation data shows that rent prices soared last year. Michelle Zadikian breaks it down. The Federal Housing Agency says the vacancy rate for purpose-built rental apartments sat at 1.5% in October 2023 when CMHC conducted the annual survey, down from 1.9% a year earlier. The average rent for a two-bedroom purpose-built apartment grew 8% to just over $1,300 per month last year, well above historical averages. Meanwhile, the average rent for a two-bedroom condo was about $2,000, with the vacancy rate for such units falling from 1.6 to 0.9% annually. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. A lot of data there, but the broad conclusion is, oh goodness gracious, is it expensive to live in this country all over the place? Some more data for you to consider this morning, and I'm going to tell you that this story probably relates to the last one. Statistics Canada data shows the country's fertility rate hit an all-time low in 2022. Sarah Ritchie takes a closer look. Canada's fertility rate dropped to 1.33 children per woman in 2022. That downward trend started back in 2009 and got worse as the pandemic began in 2020. There was a slight recovery in the second year of COVID-19, but the drop between 2021 and 2022 was the largest since the baby bust in the 1970s. StatCan says that puts Canada in the middle of the pack of 10 high-income countries, including those in the G7. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Surprise, surprise, it's expensive to live and therefore it's expensive to give life and bring new kids into the world. Surprise, surprise. Again, that thread that I'm tying a bow on to connect those two stories, you might think it's an overstretch. I tell you, it's the truth. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook on Wednesday, also asking you about your money. What is something that most gobbles away at your disposable income? 20% of you said food, food delivery services. 30% of you said streaming services. 0% of you said technology. And 50% of you said hobbies. Over on X, Rick X's in. 
I put down food delivery services, re reason being that while I spend more on technology, I don't consider that disposable income. It's a necessity today. I also spend more on hobbies, but my hobby is exercise, also an essential expense for my health, so also not disposable income in my opinion. Over on Facebook, Crafton Deborah says, cable streaming services were too difficult to get home channels with closed captioning and grocery delivery service. Robin chimes in with paint supplies. Martha jokes around and says, opening the door to any store. One last piece of feedback to share here that was not related to uh, the daily poll. Alex Smythe brought a game to the table yesterday about different kinds of coffee, and we played a game of sip or skip. Of course, the jumping off point to that conversation was Starbucks bringing in olive oil coffee, while Elizabeth Moeller sent myself and Alex an email after the show talking about the clear coffee that Alex was talking about, the coffee that tastes like coffee but is totally clear, and Elizabeth brought a bit of an accessibility angle into that. As a blind coffee drinker, wouldn't it be nice not to get stains all over your clothes when you spill? So thank you to everybody who chimes in, whether it's on social media, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, feedback at ami.ca is the email. You're not all gonna get the direct line to me and Alex and our email addresses, but Elizabeth gets special privileges. <laughs> Today's daily poll is all about robot restaurants. This is something that's going to be explored in about 40 minutes with Jenny Bovard. Canadian restaurants are using robots to prepare food. Would you eat at a restaurant operated by robots, yes or no? John Lepke, you're stepping in for Laura Bain again today. Would you eat at a robot restaurant? It's the kind of thing you do at CES, the computer electronics show. Um, so maybe once for the novelty, um, but I'm I'm not interested in taking jobs away from humans. And if I want to eat gross prepackaged like food, you know, put available to me by robots, then I'll eat gross prepackaged food like society intended. Oh yeah, I like that. A little bit of snark on that one from John Alex Smythe. What about you? Yeah, so the way I view it is if I, I'm not going to go to like a fine sit down restaurant and then want to have my food prepared by a robot. But if it's going to be something like fast food, like a McDonald's or Burger King, I mean, how much automation already takes place when it comes to fast food? Like you hear the stories all the time. You basically press a button on a McDonald's assembly line and the burger kind of gets made on its own. I could foresee that like being a very clear transition to, okay, we're just automating the full process. And I, I'm sure the the end result's not gonna be all that different. Uh, that said though, like I, I like when it's gonna be something a bit more fine dining, a bit more upscale, something you go sit down, you really enjoy. I like the human touch. I like the uh, kind of the attention to detail because every single, you know, uh, dish requires something different. There's a nuance in it sometimes. Okay, well, the exact recipes aren't always going to be replicated. So maybe you need to adjust, add a bit more salt, add a bit more acid, fat, things like that. These are all nuances that robots can't quite do. So fast food, yes. Sit down, fine dining, 
No, absolutely not. Yeah, food is supposed to be art, so you want that human touch, especially when you're getting into more elevated forms of dining. I do want to give a shout out to Cassandra Chaddock from AMI's Marketing and Communications Department, who sent me an email yesterday with a link to a TikTok video about a cafe in Japan where it's exclusively a robot cafe, but the robots are operated remotely by employees with disabilities. So it's an opportunity to offer mm -hmm. equi equity employment for people with disabilities while utilizing some of the convenience of robots. So big thanks to Cassandra for uh, sending that one over uh, on the old TikTok machine. I feel like such a Gen Zer that I'm on the TikTok machine. Okay, I wanna hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca is the email address, or 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number, 1-866-509-4545 is the phone number. Would you eat at a restaurant operating by robots. Come on, get in there, chime in. Let your voice be heard from coast to coast to coast on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. Coming up after the break, McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio is continuing their 2024 prediction series, this time with a focus on health, politics, and education. A couple of my favorite topics. Content curator Don Dickinson takes a look at a couple of the most notable predictions. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio is continuing their series, Predictions for the Year Ahead 2024. This week's show is covering a few of my favorite topics, health, politics, and education. There are a bunch of predictions, so content curator Don Dickinson is picking out some of the best highlights to share with you. Hey, good morning, Don. Hi there, Dave. I thought you'd be interested in these three topics. <laughs> I always am. Don, th this, like, this particular edition of McLean's Magazine has offered so much juice to squeeze from the fruit over the last three weeks. Like, it is remarkable how thorough and in-depth this particular edition of the magazine was. It's got to make your job as a content curator actually a little bit tough because there's so much to pick from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I was saying earlier that it's just jam-packed, this issue, because it's a whole 2024 predictions issue, and it covers all kinds of topics, and uh, they've gone to real experts in the field. That's the real key, you know, people yeah. who really know their stuff. So it's not just some random uh, journalist <laughs> editorializing, you know. We're talking about expert opinion here. Not just some random Dave Brown picking things out of the <laughs> sky. Uh, Don, let's begin with the health field. McLean's is predicting that hospitals are going to be getting a helping hand from drones. What are they predicting? 
Yeah, well, uh, this is surprising because uh, they're going to basically be following uh, places like India and Rwanda. Rwanda was a real surprise, and the United States, and beginning uh, to begin shuffling medical uh, samples by drones in 2024. The uh, the goal is to speed up turnaround times for lab results. That's something we all you know, we're fond of, uh, which has been lagging since the pandemic. Uh, two hospitals in Ontario's Halton region are testing a drone system that transports blood uh, samples and urine cultures back and forth while bypassing Toronto traffic. <laughs> yeah, don't you, don't you wish you could bypass Toronto traffic? I mean, that's why I live in North York. <laughs> All right, Don, staying on the health file, research on psychedelic therapy is expanding. How does McLean see that playing out in Canada? Yeah, well, there was some real surprises here too, Dave. Um, Obviously, psychedelics continue to march out of the darkness. They're now discovering that, you know, they can be of great benefit. Uh, They don't have the real bugaboo kind of, uh, you know, like feeling that they had in past years. And the federal government has now spent $3 million last year studying the benefits of uh, psilocybin therapy for addiction and depression. And Alberta, this blew me away, Dave. Alberta is leading the way um, with the medical use of psychedelics. Last November, uh, a Senate subcommittee urged the government to study them as a treatment for PTSD in veterans. And clinics that that can legally administer uh, psilocybin therapy are steadily sprouting across the country. So that's really, that's great. I mean, you know, now that we're discovering that they're helpful, why not? Yeah, do the research, right? That that was one of the things about the health benefits of cannabis for years and years. You had to do the research, right? You you can't just sort of say it colloquially or anecdotally. You you have to do the research, and that's got to start somewhere, and research costs money. Yeah, exactly. So they've made that commitment now, and it looks like, uh, as I say, that they're going to make more of a commitment in the future. Uh, Don, was the choice of the word sprout an intentional pun there, or was it an unintentional <laughs> pun? Of course it's intentional, of course. (laughs) Deliberate, everything is deliberate. Okay, Don, over to the politics category. 2024 is going to feature an American presidential election. It already seems very clear that Donald Trump is going to win the Republican nomination and is certainly a strong contender to potentially win the election. So what does McLean's think that could mean for Canada? Oh, Dave, I don't even like to venture on this one. I'm so disgusted by the fact that he might even have a chance, you know. But anyhow, should Donald Trump or another ultra-conservative prospect win in November, uh, Canada might expect an influx of political refugees. I can understand that. Increased economic and diplomatic isolation and a rise in far-right movements um, on home soil, believe it or not. Too bad about that. Uh, Foreign uh, Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie has said the Trudeau government is uh, readying a plan for uh, varying scenarios. I love that, eh? So basically, they're just prepping that and hoping and hoping and hoping. <laughs> yeah, last week uh, during the uh, the cabinet retreat, they, they announced plans to form a Team Canada specifically tasked with maintaining the trade relationship because that is that is one of the concerns. You already saw it in the previous Trump presidency. There was, uh, there, there wasn't just an attempt 
to tear up NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. They did tear it up and had to sign the new one, USMECA. So there's the possibility of some protectionism popping up uh, depending on the outcome of the election. And you can tell that's where the federal government is, is already putting plans in place to say the trade relationship is important, they're our biggest trade partner, and therefore we need to be ready to advocate and make a business case for the trade relationship that sort of like goes aside from just like the politics of it all, but the economics of it all. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a it's a fine line between circling the wagons and opening up. <laughs> you know, you have to. You have to. Uh, what do they say about keeping your your enemies closer than your friends, or something to that effect? You know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the United States. We've done. You know, as you say, we they're our biggest partner, and. Uh, we want to have good relations with them, but we also don't want to be squished, you know? Yeah, so precisely. precisely. There you go. All right, Don, over to education. McLean says that modular classrooms will be the new portables in school settings. Don, this requires some distinction. When they say a modular classroom, what makes that uh, different in comparison to a portable well, of course, we all, well, I shouldn't say we all, I'm just going by my age group, but a lot of us grew up with portables because, of course, there was a huge expansion in the population in, in, uh, in schools, and a lot of us had to, you know, throw on the old parkas and trudge out to the portables because, <laughs> because the schools were absolutely jam-packed. But this new one, uh, this new idea is to make modular um, Units And essentially, the main difference is that a modular classroom is made up of a number of bays to create a larger space. It's built off-site from the actual school uh, building, but delivered in single units and then installed on-site to create a, a bigger building. There's designed to be permanent structures, but can be moved if needed. And basically, this is a, a, a something that's been happening in, in cottage country for a while now, mm -hmm, Dave. Mm -hmm. uh, we've even seen it when we've been up at the farm is that a lot of people, they don't want to go to the huge expense of, of getting a uh, full-scale house built. So they're buying these modular units, uh, these portable buildings, and they're putting it on the land that they own. And then as the money uh, comes uh, to them, you know, as their finances allow, and as their families grow, they can add other modular units. I think it is a fabulous idea. Yeah, it's uh, not it's not just the classroom here too. This is something that could be utilized more on the housing front, not just in cottage country, but across the board too in terms of speed and quality. And that's the thing, quality is an important word here. Modular does not mean cheap. It just means it goes up fast. It's prefab, it's pre-designed. It's uh, definitely an interesting idea. Hey Don, on the way out the door here, I want to ask you the daily poll question. Not sure if you heard it in the first segment of the show at Accessible Media on X at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. Jenny Bovard is going to be talking about this in about 20 minutes on the show. The rise of robot restaurants. More Canadian restaurants are using robots to prepare food. Don, would you eat at a robot-run restaurant? Oh, geez, Dave. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, considering that uh, people have... Well, particularly since the pandemic, people have really restricted themselves about going out to restaurants. So when I go out to a restaurant now, it it has to be pretty decent, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, because because it is a, a treat, right? It's no longer that you know that you're going out all the time. So I don't think so. I mean, yes, if it's just really like a quickie McDonald's, something like that, I can see where it's uh, very automated and it just you know 
yeah. no big deal, right? But I think if you're going to go and make the effort to, you know, have a night out with your with your family and friends, you want a little something special. And I don't know how special it is if a robot's throwing it together on a grill, you know? <laughs> yeah, the, the human connection and the nature of art when it comes to food. You, you can't lose that. That Food is not simply an assembly line, especially in the context of opening up the wallet and, like you say, spending a bit more. It, it It's tough to totally reconcile the idea of having a robot do that because it just means that everything becomes more prefabricated in our lives and you know prefabricated housing is one thing but prefabricated foods a little bit different and the other thing is dave if you think about it when you tip you tip for service but you also tip for good food right yeah. so <laughs> who, who, who are you tipping oh d- d- you better believe that question is coming up with jenny later in the show it's like you read my mind don dickinson oh, there you go. hey don thank you for this have a lovely day have a great weekend talk to you next week Okie doke, Dave. Bye-bye. That's content curator Don Dickinson. You can catch McLean's Magazine weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. Coming up after the break, Canada has announced that it's not ready to extend medical assistance in dying to people whose only medical condition is a mental health disorder. Reporter Megan Gilmore has been all over this story for years and has the latest. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's a major update on medical assistance in dying. The government of Canada announced on Monday that it will not allow made for people whose sole condition is a mental health disorder. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland says provinces are telling him they're not ready for that kind of expansion. Eligibility was supposed to expand in March. Holland says he will table legislation to delay the change. I've talked with uh, health ministers from New Democratic governments, health ministers from uh, a liberal government, uh, health minister uh, from uh, from Quebec, uh, you know, all of whom say their system isn't ready. So it's not just conservative uh, health ministers that are saying this. Uh, this is uh, these are every single health minister from every single province, every single territory, telling me they're not ready. Megan Gilmore is a reporter with Canadian Affairs. Megan has been all over this story for years and can offer some more context on this development. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Always a pleasure, Megan. Uh, When I say you've been on this for years, pretty much since the first week that Now with Dave Brown existed, coming up on the four-year anniversary, you talked about this on the show. So Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. a lot of history here, but what's some of the broader context ahead of this change? Sure. So the broader history, um, we're going to try to summarize this very quickly. 2016, Canada legalizes what we call medical assistance in dying uh, in other countries referred to as euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, depending on which uh, method is used. In 2021, uh, the government removed the criteria that an individual's death must be naturally, uh, natural death must be reasonably foreseeable to qualify for MAID. And 
at that point, made for mental illness had always been understood that it would it was excluded. But in 2021, as that legislation to remove the naturally reasonably foreseeable uh, clause was being debated, the Senate introduced an amendment to put what was called a sunset clause on the exclusion for mental illness. So what was passed in March 2021 was a law that said in March 2023, last year, made for individuals whose sole underlying condition is a mental illness would be allowed. Uh, and about a year ago, we were in a very similar spot. There were a lot of concerns being raised about this, and the government decided to delay it until March 17th, 2024, as, as you heard in that clip. Um, and then back in October, there was a private member's bill put forward by the Conservatives that would have explicitly said no made for sole underlying condition mental illness, just not at all. And that bill was defeated, as most private members' bills are, but by a very, very slim margin of votes. Mm -hmm. And politicians from all parties voted in favor of this or, or abstained. Um, so after that vote went through, there was a committee struck again um, to look at whether or not Canada is ready for made for mental illness. So this committee had been around last year studying issues related to made. They came back in October with one question to look at, and it is, is Canada ready to have made for individuals whose sole condition is a mental illness? So go a bit deeper into that committee. What yeah. what did they come what did they come out with? It's an important question. What did they come out with? They came the majority recommendation of this committee as tabled in a report on Monday is that Canada is not ready and we should not have made for individuals whose sole underlying condition is a mental illness until there is agreement from both the Minister of Health and the Minister of Justice on a federal level, also along with provinces, territories, and Indigenous governments. Once, once they all, once the federal government in consultation with those provincial, territorial, and Indigenous partners says we are ready then uh, to do it, but with that big recommendation, there was a second part of it that said, you know, within one one year before Canada does this, that they would like this committee to come back again, to again look at the question, are we ready for this? But the committee is, as a whole, recommending we are not ready for this in this country. Medical assistance in dying is not just controversial from an ethic, ethical point of view and a legal point of view. It has a lot of different points of view within the overall conversation. How was that represented? How was the notion of controversy reflected in the report? Well, uh, so the report is 51 pages. Of those 51, probably about 17 of them are devoted to dissenting opinions. So the that recommendation that we are not ready, that we should not do this until there is a clear agreement from the federal, from the Ministry of Health, Ministry of Justice, that was not unanimous by any stretch of the imagination. There were two dissenting uh, opinions written, so people saying we disagree with that conclusion. Uh, notably, those dissenting opinions were all written by senators. And so there was a group of senators, three senators who wrote um, a very lengthy dissent saying essentially, we think that we're ready now and we don't think this committee even did its job properly. And it's very, very long. And then there's another dissent from, from another senator who is saying that 
he also believes we're ready, but he is recommending that the question of whether or not MAID should be allowed for individuals whose sole condition is a mental illness, that that question should be referred to the Supreme Court of Canada to deal with uh, issues of equality under the charter and other charter considerations that come with it. What stood out to you from the report? Yeah, uh, first of all, the conclusion. I, I was not expecting that conclusion from what I had seen. Um, this committee had six meetings between October 31st and mid-December. Of those six meetings, only three of them were dedicated to having witnesses give testimony. And the majority of people who spoke to the committee uh, seemed to be suggesting that that we were maybe ready. Um, so I, I was overall, I, this was not the answer I was expecting. Um, other things that stood out to me was specifically how the committee um, and then the dissenting reports discussed the briefs. So uh, the committee, like it off, the committees often do, put out a call for public briefs that people, like citizens, like you or me or or an organization, can write to these committees and say what they think about whatever this committee is studying. That's very common. This committee received more than nine hundred briefs. And none of them were used as evidence in writing this report because the committee said the committee decided in a private in-camera meeting, this was not done publicly, uh, they made some decisions. Uh, for example, uh, we want all briefs to be translated into French and English before they can be used as evidence in this report. That decision was made after they'd sent out the requirements for what briefs needed to be like. Uh, so none, none of that evidence was, was used for writing of this report. And the way that that was described by different uh, people, by, by the majority opinion and then by the dissenting senators, was, was very different. And it was just really interesting to read kind of like that political wrangling. And, and frustrating for me as a reporter who had covered that issue about the use of a Bruce not being used. And I just wanted to scream at everybody and be like, you made this decision. And then there were some people complaining that Bruce weren't used. And I was like, you were literally on the committee that decided not to use them. Like, that's what happened. Um, another thing that stood out to me, and this is, this is consistent, with past AMAD committee reports is particularly when individuals are saying Canada, they, the average Canadian agrees with this policy, with made for mental illness, they'll cite public opinion polls and they'll link to them. And those links will take you to public opinion polling that was commissioned by Dying with Dignity Canada, which is the pro-made lobby group in this country. Uh, and that they never say who's doing the polling, but they provide the link to it. And if you click on the link, it'll take you there. Um, and that's always stood out to me, um, like the sources that are used when people are making their, their arguments for this. And that was, again, another consistent theme in the dissenting senator's opinion. Megan, uh, you mentioned public polling. It's been a couple of mm -hmm. days since the announcement was made. What's the public response been? Right. So some of it falls under lines that you would expect. So Dying with Dignity Canada, the pro-made lobby group in this country, they are very upset by this decision. They, they don't want it. Uh, groups that have always said made for mental illness is a problem. We should not do that are saying this is good like please please don't allow this but there's also been some public opinion polling coming out from the ontario psychiatric association they released a survey results yesterday actually that showed that the majority of their members say that we are not ready for made for soul condition mental illness next month 
And some would say we will never be ready, that we should never do this. And by and large, Ontario, the members of the Ontario Psychiatric Association, the doctors who are very much involved in this, are saying we don't we don't think this is a good idea and we don't want to be involved in assessing people for made for the sole, sole reason of mental illness. Mm. Megan, one of the most important questions in journalism, what happens next? Sure. So I'm going to answer uh, with two, two ways to answer this question. One is very immediate. So the legislation um, to enact this delay should be tabled today in the House of Commons, um, where it potentially could be debated next week. And for all of you who have been paying attention to our civics lessons that we give you on this show, thank you, <laughs> uh, you'll probably be like, but wait, Megan, aren't there supposed to be committees that study these things? You are correct. And Minister Holland addressed that on Monday and said, you know, this is coming because of a committee report. We've essentially already done our yeah, study on yeah. this. Um, so that's kind of been done. I think it will be interesting to see what happens when this legislation makes it to the Senate, because that's where the disagreement on the committee came from. It came right, from right. senators. So that, that will be an interesting thing. Also, senators are not elected. Um, so that's that. Oh, um, just tossing that, just rolling that grenade rolling into the conversation. Out, yeah, Thanks, yeah. Megan. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, sorry, guys. Um, they're not fighting for a seat in the next election. Um, so that's, that's what you can expect immediately. Um, on made as public policy in general, uh, the next area that people are really lobbying around is advanced directives, um, allowing people to say early on after a diagnosis that they would like made, and this presumably removes the requirement for final consent. Um, that's actually what people are really lobbying the government for right now. I often receive press releases from organizations about this. So there's a petition going on. Like That's what's, that's what's actually going on in the background uh, while we're all discussing made for mental illness. And then on a broader social level, when you talk to some of the people, especially some of the doctors who were really um, vocal and public about their concerns about allowing made in cases where mental illness is the sole condition, they would say that what they hope happens now is that we have a broader conversation in Canada about supporting people who live with long-term mental illness. And what does it mean for them to live full lives in community? Um, how do we deal with loneliness? A, a good majority of people who die by made will cite loneliness or feeling like a burden on their friends or family as one of the contributing factors to their suffering. Those are not medical things. So how do we as a country respond to loneliness? Do we have a suicide prevention strategy in this country? Um, so bigger questions like that about caring for people living with mental illness and caring for all of us. Mm. Uh, some people would really say that that's what we hope we take from this, that we move into a direction where we're having bigger conversations about uh, responding to problems like loneliness, mental illness, and suicidal ideation. Megan, thank you for this. I know it's a pretty, uh, it's 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 a very important topic that requires some mental fortitude. So thank you for your ongoing coverage on it. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me do this, guys. That's Megan Gilmore, a reporter with Canadian Affairs. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. 
Canada's main stock index tumbled by 1% yesterday on broad-based weakness. Toronto's TSX index dropped 205 points to close at 21,021. New York's Dow Jones average lost 317 points and the Nasdaq dropped 345 points. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 275 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.35 cents U.S. Asian shares were mixed today after Wall Street fell to its worst loss since September as the U.S. Federal Reserve indicated cuts to interest rates are not imminent. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said cuts to rates may be likely this year but not as soon as traders hoped. And residential development projects are increasingly being pushed into receivership across this country. Experts say elevated interest rates, construction costs and delays and a slower real estate market are all contributing to the rising frequency of projects coming under financial stress. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau. Thank you very much, Karen. From business to weather, here's Alex Smythe. Alex, you're crunching some numbers this morning. January has seen more records fall when it comes to weather across the country. Specifically, I'm focused in on temperatures. And the hottest days in January on record have been found throughout the country on Tuesday, uh, apparently January 30th. Uh, so we will look at Edmonton, Alberta, which set a new January record with 10 degrees uh, with Swift Current uh, Saskatchewan. They reached 17 degrees to create a new record in Swift Current. And even Churchill, Manitoba, home of the polar bears, set a new high at 2.7 degrees for a record in January. But not to be outdone, the biggest uh, kind of, I guess, spike was in Maple Creek, Saskatchewan, which recorded a high of 21.1 degrees Celsius. It is not only the hottest day in uh, uh, Maple Creek, but the second hottest day in January Ever. It's only been beat by Niagara Falls, Ontario, which once set a record at 22.2 degrees. So it's only 1.1 degree off the all-time January record. Now, why was it as hot as it was? There's a number of contributing factors that really work together to create this kind of storm of heat and warmth within the region. So things like the sea surface level uh, temperatures were all much warmer than normal. You had an atmospheric river and Pineapple Express event, which I had talked about, which is currently impacting BC. That is also bringing warmer air over into the prairies. You have snow, uh, a lack of snow cover on the ground makes the ground warmer, it's creating to that, and also downwinds that have been helping to fuel all this warmer temperature in the area. All those have contributed to the second hottest day ever for January in Canada. And uh, looking ahead, that warm weather is set to continue into February. So we may not be seeing record uh, uh, temperatures like we did on Tuesday, but expect warm conditions to continue into this month. And we'll see what February has in store from coast to coast to coast. Right on, only time will tell. Another great broadcast cliche. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, more restaurants are using robots to prepare food. Jenny Bovard has opinions on that trend, and so do I. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. More restaurants are using robots to prepare food. There are some extreme examples. Vancouver's Food Republic uses a robot that makes 300 salads in an hour. Major chains are experimenting with robots, too. Domino's has a robot pizza oven. White Castle has a robot arm that flips burgers. So the core question, would you go to a restaurant run by robots? Jenny Bovard has thoughts on this. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Hey, good morning, Dave. Or should I say beep, 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 boop? <laughs> yeah, once again, you and I find ourselves <laughs> talking about robots. And that's okay, Jenny. That's okay. Because when AI and food and robots can meet each other, I think you and I are uniquely qualified to talk about it. So, Jenny, the core question at the heart of this conversation is, how would you feel about eating at a restaurant run by robots? Dave, I would feel just fine about eating at a restaurant run by robots. The caveat for me would be as long as someone at the, the top of the chain of command is in charge, as long as there's an actual human being that owns the business, because otherwise that's like a sci-fi story that is interesting, <laughs> but I don't want to be a part of. Um, I think the big thing is is thinking about the fact that robots and tech are already very much involved in the food that we eat and just the front line the fast food part this is just a big new thing that we are being challenged to embrace we have robots and tech all throughout our lives right they're cleaning our houses they're helping us perform surgery they but again they've been involved in our food and what we eat for decades now mm. they're milk in our cows right they uh produce our food help produce our food at like a factory level and of course there are concerns that go along with robots and tech replacing these jobs right people are concerned about humans losing their jobs to robots and the food industry is saying that hey we have actually had like an exodus of fast food workers since about 2021 businesses are claiming that they can't find people to work to fill these jobs so the argument is that hey these robots are stepping into like you said at the top to flip burgers and cook fries and scoop hundreds and hundreds of avocados to make guacamole these are repetitive tasks that maybe one could argue that humans are sick of performing chipotle's uh, on board and big chains yeah. like domino's are on board and they're claiming that as well we can shift the human beings to other roles, right? Someone needs to maintain these robots and this technology. There needs to be some quality control. And of course, there are still customer-facing roles. And maybe those will be enhanced, right, yeah. as a result of moving the robots into the fast food kitchen. Yeah, the human connection still matters. And I think you underlined it quite empathetically, that there is still a labor issue at, at the core here in this conversation. It's not to replace humans. It's about perhaps enhancing the experience. So with that caveat in place, acknowledging some concerning trends in the way workers are treated in, treated in the labor force, where do you see the advantage from a customer point of view? I can think of a couple, but I want to give you the first crack at it. Oh, I can't wait to hear your advantages and see if they align. Um, I think it's important to, to state, you know, there may be a correlation between finding people to work in fast food and the wage that we pay them. Um, of course, robots and tech, it's going to spell savings for the business owners, right? The machine that can make 300 salads an hour, I don't know any human being that can be that efficient. 
Robots also don't call in sick. So we're not going to be waiting for our food when we're in a rush. Imagine you're on a lunch break. Imagine you're out trying to get errands run, right? These efficiencies are hopefully going to be passed down to us. It's going to be nice and fast every time. There's less room for error. My hope is that my salad won't have any of those hard tomato pieces. If there's a robot on board, it should be able to detect these things with less room for error. <laughs> Are my garlic fingers going to be cut evenly? If you're on the East Coast, you know, you know. <laughs> but the same goes for pizza. Nothing worse than like a bunch of uneven pizza slices. That's where my mind goes, the efficiency. And human interaction is important, right? Maybe we'll start seeing savings as well. But just going back to human interaction, let's acknowledge that it's important, right? In the dosage that it works for us, human interaction is good. Even if it's just complimenting someone on their latte skills. I need, I have days like that where I just need to talk to the barista. But other days I just, you know, I'm having a hard morning. I just want to get to my meeting. I just want my breakfast sandwich and my coffee. I don't need to exchange pleasantries necessarily. So there's there's that benefit too, right? Dave, before you tell me your 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 take on this, which I'm dying to hear, l- let's also think about again, all the tech that's already in our lives, vending machines, people probably turn their noses up at vending machines. But every now and then, that vending machine coffee is what you need, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Right, so let's think about that. And refrigeration, this is just a new evolution on how humans get our food in a fast, efficient way. I think you, but we need to be, let's be conscientious at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think you and I are aligned because I was also thinking about speed the speed and efficiency of the customer experience, mm-hmm. right? That that if if the robot knows how to make the coffee just the way I like it, even though I'm generally drinking black coffee, <laughs> but if I am going to indulge in that cappuccino or that latte, I like the idea of knowing that it's going to be consistently made to a certain quality standard and that it's going to be made quickly. I, I, that's been one of the distinctions because I've been, I've been bouncing this question around the show basically since we launched this morning about would you go to a restaurant run by robots? And the general consensus was that in quick service or fast food, people were cool with that idea because of automation that already exists and because there are certain uh, adequate quality control standards that you want in place and maybe that McDouble that is good at York Mills and Leslie and not so good at the uh, Don Mills and Flemington Park location, if you can start bridging some of those gaps, uh, that from a consumer point of view is good and not having to wait for 20 or 30 minutes when I'm in a purported fast food restaurant, I can definitely see that advantage. But Jenny, that's where the zooming out in this conversation matters, because I think it's easy to look at this in the context of fast food or quick service. But then there is the restaurant side, the sit down restaurant side. And I'm curious how the nature of the restaurant impacts your point of view, because if I'm going to an elevated place, I really want to have that artistic connection to not just the cook or the chef, but the server as well. I ended up going to a steakhouse in Calgary earlier this year where the food was delightful. I mean, a steak is a steak is a steak, and a potato is a potato is a potato, but the experience was delightful because of the kindness and caring and attention to detail of the human who served us. You hit the nail right on the head, and... It, it, consistency, yes. 
key with my breakfast sandwich, key with my coffee, those fast go-to things when you're in a rush. But a sit-down restaurant is a whole other experience. And this comes down to just options for me. I don't see robots replacing the nice environment and social interaction that we get with the server and the going above and beyond that we get when it makes me think of one time my husband and I went out for our anniversary a robot server is fun and gimmicky but they're not going to overhear our conversation that it's our anniversary and then surprise us with a dessert that says happy anniversary on it you know I don't see that happening if I did I would be very impressed with whatever tech they're using. But it's those nice to have things that go along with a sit down restaurant. I don't think those are going anywhere. Although there are some restaurants that even in in the Halifax area, we have a sushi place, we have a Chinese place where a a robot server brings you your food. And it's a gimmick. It's a fun thing. But it's options, right? I want the option of, I want all these options. And I think that is... That is where we're going with this. That's my hope. I, I once again want to give a shout out to Cassandra Chaddock of AMI's uh, Marketing and Communications Department for sending me a video yesterday of a cafe in Tokyo that utilizes robot servers and a lot of robot labor. But Jenny, here's the twist to apply a disability lens. The robots are run by employees with disabilities remotely, right? So, like, there's a world here where you can kind of get the best of both worlds and do some, like, equitable hiring for people with disabilities. Like, like there are moments in these kinds of stories that do fill me with hope. Yeah, we need to look at the bigger picture, like you said earlier. Even when automation came in, in in like a factory setting, there are still human beings required to make those things happen and to make them successful. And yes, you can employ any number of people in any number of different ways. And and that that's the best of all the worlds, I think. Jenny, one last question on the way out the door here. This was uh, brought to my attention by one of our producers, Bob, yesterday. It's such a good question. Would you tip a robot? The logical answer should be no, right? A robot? (laughs) How is a robot going to go above and beyond? A robot doesn't have a mortgage to pay. But at the end of the day, if those tips are being passed on to humans, you know, if that's made clear to me, I might consider tipping the robot. (laughs) It's like like when the self-checkout machine asks you for a tip and it's like, wait, what? Who, Who am I tipping here? Does this go back to me? That's right. That's right. (laughs) Hey, Jenny, you're the best. Thank you for always bringing such interesting topics to the table. Good chat, Dave. Thank you. That's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. You can find that show on your favorite podcasting platform, one of my personal faves on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Let's bring in John Lepke to talk a little bit about entertainment. John, your topic is also dealing a little bit with automation and and AI. The estate of the late comedian George Carlin is suing a podcast. What are some of the details here? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Joys of AI. Uh, This podcast, uh, two podcasters from this podcast called Dudesy um, are being uh, sued because they used, uh, or they are accused of being, of using uh, George Carlin's materials um, 
to train an AI model and then host a podcast, which, uh, to my understanding, is basically a, a comedy special of sorts using data. And so now, now the family is saying this is um, this is gross. This is you know this is antithetical to what George Carlin believed in. Yeah, um, really interesting that they put the comedian who wrote the bit about the seven words you can't say on TV, like very countercultural. I'm sure he would be. I, I think it's fair to say he would be horrified. Um, and so it's interesting. The the uh, a lot of the coverage around this notes that uh, the law quote hasn't kept up, which I think we're seeing in a lot of sectors when it comes to AI. Um, and so we'll see where where this shakes out as to where the line is when it comes to um, repurposing content in this way. It is simultaneously very entertaining to see how AI is being used to repurpose existing intellectual content. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the AI artist who took uh, Frank Sinatra's voice and had him sing Get Low by Lil Jon and the East Side Boys that popped up earlier this year. Um, oh you know, John, it's it's tricky in terms of sort of the literal versus the satirical. I don't know about a full-blown monetizable podcast is something I'm comfortable with, but I don't want to lose sight of some of the oddities and weirdness and satire that AI can offer. So, so as much as I would certainly empathize with the estate on this lawsuit front, there is opportunity opportunity with creativity and AI, and I don't want to lose sight of that. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's the fact that they're training it on the model for him to come up with content, right? If you're if you're uh, if you're using a voice to say something funny of somebody who is dead, um, then you know, per perhaps as an example, not the only example, th then perhaps there's there's mileage. I, th I think it's just, particularly when it comes to comedy, there's this weird split where some people see it as artistry and some people don't, often consumers don't. Um, yet the, you know, the level of effort it takes creating a new hour every year, essentially. I think George Carlin had something like 12 specials over his mm -hmm, career. Mm -hmm. um, that's not an exact number. Apologies, listeners. But but he had a lot of segments. And he really saw from the from an earlier days of countercultural community onto being sort of the elder statesman in his last special rallying on about about funerals fairly soon before he, he passed away from a heart attack. Um that they picked a countercultural comedian is is really interesting for this, and I think is probably why there is this response from from the family, where it's like this doesn't seem to be in alignment with yeah. what the comedian would want. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I get that too, and I also think the scale matters as well when you're talking about a full hour podcast or a forty five minute podcast that's essentially repurposing someone's voice. Like that is that can get problematic uh, very quickly and quickly. And considering that I'm someone who uh, has been on national television for over ten years now, uh, it would be pretty easy for someone to make me say whatever they want as well. Which uh, maybe I'd feel a little bit different if the shoe was on a different foot. Uh, John, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. You as well. That is John Lepke coming up after the break. Ontario school boards are making a weird decision around the solar eclipse coming up in April. I've got that story in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca and on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. And when I do something really good, share the segment with your friends. And when I do something really bad, share that with your friends too. Laugh at me, mock me. This is Dave Brown. He's awful. It's Thursday, February the 1st, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Apple has introduced a transcription feature on their podcast platform. Marco Flalo gives you the scoop. And the coming-of-age film Didi made its debut at Sundance. Michael McNeely has a review. The sports chat is coming up in just a couple of minutes, but let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Over to the prairies, indigenous leaders are renewing their push for an all-season road on the east side of Lake Winnipeg to remote communities. Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs Grand Chief Kathy Merrick explains how difficult it is for residents to access services. And there's people that come for medical and, and flying, flying in. It costs $10,000, $15,000 a shot when there's a, a life flight from our First Nation communities. More than 10,000 people live in the region. Over to Ontario. This is the story that I told you about before the break that kind of ruffled my feathers a little bit. So let's set up the story and then I'll give you a bit of a reaction. The Toronto District School Board is cancelling classes on a date in April on account of a solar eclipse. Nicole Reese explains. Elena Hyde, a professor of physics and astronomy at York University in Toronto, says the eclipse will be visible in the United States before moving towards southern Ontario, then Quebec, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia's Cape Breton, lasting for about two hours around the same time many kids in Canada are let out from school. Observers in the Ontario communities of Niagara Falls, Hamilton and Grimsby specifically can expect total darkness for about four minutes sometime between 2 and 4 p.m. Eastern time. Given how rare the celestial event is Hyde says precautions need to be taken, particularly with children, which include not looking directly at the eclipse. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. I think Nicole hits it right there at the end, the safety concern, the notion of how difficult it is to protect children's eyes during a solar eclipse. But is canceling classes really the answer? Isn't this a learning opportunity? Is, I remember when there was a solar eclipse when I was in grade three or grade four, we spent all day learning about the solar eclipse and learning about how to protect ourselves and building boxes and mirrors so we could observe the eclipse. It was an amazing learning opportunity that I still think about to this day. So while I understand the conversation around safety, this seems like a preposterous decision by school boards. Teach the kids about this. Don't just hide them in a basement. Teach them. That's your job. I brought this uh, into the email chain for the news panel tomorrow. We'll see if Michelle Joita, if Michelle McGuig and Joita Gupta want to shout me down in the email chain. But I, I kind of want to talk about this. I, I feel like this requires a little bit of uh, only in journalism word, de rigueur. Okay, that's your look at the regional news update. Let's get to the sports chat with Brock Richardson. 
All right, Brock, it might be the NHL All-Star break, but uh, the hot stove is all fired up. The Calgary Flames have traded Elias Lindholm to the Vancouver Canucks. Elias Lindholm, being a center, has played for Calgary for years now. The Canucks are sending back forward Andre Kuzmenko, two prospects, a first-round draft pick and a fourth-round draft pick. Brock, your reaction to the trade that uh, broke late yesterday? Nice haul by uh, by Calgary to get that back. Like that's a that's a pretty good haul. I will also admit that Mr. Lindholm is is worth that. I would agree. I think it's a it's a very nice trade. Both sides get you know really good stuff there. So I think it's a win win for both sides. I, I would say to you, Dave, I find this trade interesting, and I'll tell you why. I was. Finding myself yesterday watching Overdrive, which is a TSN uh, property of a talk show. And they had Jim Rutherford on, who's the president of hockey operations for the Vancouver Canucks. And they had him on, and he made the remark that maybe something was in the works. And after he got off the phone, the Overdrive gentleman started tinkering around with this idea that maybe there's something in, in Jim Rutherford's trick bag, and there's kind of this... Uh, you know, trade freeze, quote unquote, idea over the uh, all-star break. And so maybe he's got something in the barrel and he's going to pull it after the all-star break. Well, maybe an hour and a half later, we learn of this trade. And I just think that, you know, the interview that I listened to with Jim Rutherford, he seems very happy. He seems very happy with all the things. And the thing I would love on top of this trade is the fact that everybody in management has gotten extensions with the Vancouver Canucks. Coaching staff, management, everybody. So to me, this is the kind of move, Dave, where you can say to your team and to your organization, we believe in what you're doing. We're going to add a piece here and let's kind of, I don't know if go for it's the word, but let's see where oh, it's, this can it, get us. It's a, it's a go for it move. This is clearly trading for a second line center, <laughs> right? This is yeah. to take the pressure off Elias Peterson and say we're giving a second line center to this team to create more depth in our scoring. Elias Lindholm is having a down year offensively, but he's still capable of putting up points, but he's a very defensively responsible player. So even if the offense is a little bit down, he'll be able to do a lot of things for the Canucks, including win faceoffs. 55.5% in the faceoff circle this year. That's one of the best numbers in the league, considering the position and the number of faceoffs that he takes. So this is a big time go for it move by the Vancouver Canucks. It represents the second time this season they've made a trade with the Calgary Flames. They picked up Nikita Zadorov, the defenseman, earlier in the year. But Brock, you mentioned the notion of a trade freeze around the All-Star break. This trade got finalized while Elias Lindholm was in the air traveling to Toronto for the All-Star break. Brock, I would be beyond irritated if I was being sick sent to Toronto for what is essentially a gargantuan media event, and then I've got to fly back to Calgary, pack up my stuff, and figure out where I'm going to move in Vancouver, and if I'm going to pack up my family in the middle of the school year, I would be so ticked off if I was Elias Lindholm and had to spend this weekend in Toronto doing, like, photo ops and media opportunities where it's like when he has to figure out, man, where am I going to live on Monday? Yeah, and see, that to your exact point, this is the thing that people in the general population forget. These are individuals that, yes, get to play hockey. Yes, get to travel. Yes, they get to do all that. But there is a life attached to these people. So this whole notion of where do I get to live on Monday? 
as much as you sort of said it tongue in cheek in your tone, but it's also a serious thing in that the guy needs to know where he's going to live on Monday. And I think all these decisions need to be made. And for some of us in the public who just say, I'll oh, just go and do the all-star break and come back and figure it out. It's not, it's not that easy. So I think that's the human element that I think we <laughs> sometimes forget in the general public. Now he does make more than $5 million a year. So that could probably get him at least a studio apartment in Vancouver. So, you know, at least, at least there's that. At yeah, least there's least, that. Uh, All right, Brock, yeah. let's talk about the NHL all-star weekend uh, more broadly. Uh, it officially gets underway today with some media festivities, showcase games, the professional women's hockey league, media day, skills competitions, the games themselves. It all kind of rolls out here in the next couple of days. Brock, the all-star weekend is for children, um, but it's still, it's still something notable on the hockey calendar. It is, um, it is mm, for children. The only part of this that I like, that I enjoy, is the uh, skills competition. I love seeing that. I think that you can you can acknowledge the fact that you know skills happen in games and and we see it. But when you take those skills and you literally highlight them and say we're gonna do the hardest shot, we're gonna do one timers. That's the point of the all-star competition that you really look at and you say, this is what I enjoy. Do I care that it's in Toronto? No, I really don't. I was never interested in getting tickets. Too expensive. Don't really care. But I will watch uh, because I will watch. But it's not something that moves the needle for me where I go, yes, it's all-star weekend. It's one of those things where it's it's a needed thing. It's It's in the collective bargaining that we have to do it. So here we are. And that's where it is. So enjoy it if you're excited about it. But yeah. I think I've told you this story before, but I've got a couple of experiences with All-Star Weekend in my 20s. In 2009, Montreal played host to the game. I was living in Montreal at the time. I was a total degenerate loser, but I knew where the players were going to hang out, and I hung out at that nightclub that night and maybe saw some very famous NHL players uh, stumble out of the bar and fall into a snowbank. That was super cool. That was just before my real journey in broadcasting started. And about three years later, the 2012 uh, the game came to Ottawa and at that point flash forward I was well I was still a degenerate loser but now I was a degenerate loser who had a job in the media and I had a chance to take part in some of the media activities and actually start chasing the idea of being a sports journalist and interviewing all-stars and meeting other media members and sharing an elevator with Pierre Maguire one of my childhood heroes uh, who's a famous broadcaster if you don't know uh, and it just ended up being this moment in my life that was an inflection point where I thought man like maybe I've arrived like maybe this is a place where uh, I've got a future career so I always think about 2009 and 2012 as these moments in my life that were separated by three years that let me know that I was starting to wander down a path that I liked and it is a reminder about the importance of chasing your dreams I'll also say when the hockey media descends on a town look for the closest Irish pub to where the events are being held Brock thank you for this have a great weekend no have a great day you're, you're back tomorrow it's not the mm-hmm. weekend it's only Thursday I wish it was the weekend. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, talk to you tomorrow, buddy. That's Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Apple has introduced a transcription feature on their podcast platform. Marco Flalo will give you the scoop. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Apple is adding a transcription feature to their podcasting platform. The transcriptions will be automatic and fully searchable. This could be a significant step forward for accessibility and inclusivity. Mark Flalo can tell you more. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live, and Mark is in the GTA, the T.O, the 6, at Mighty AMI headquarters in North York, Ontario, sitting right next to me in studio. Hey, Mark, nice to chat with you in person. Thank you. This is not like my basement. It's way cooler. <laughs> I must tell you that. Nice yeah. to be here. <laughs> Teensy a little bit different than your yeah. basement. Mark, is this the first time you and I have shared a studio since the Pando, since the pandemic wow, started? I think, you know what? I think you're actually right. This is the first time us together. We should yeah. hold hands. Should we yeah, hold hands? Yeah, well, it's no, a little, you're a little too far across the desk. And, your arms are a little shorter than mine. It might, uh, oh. might, it might. Hey, that wasn't a, that wasn't an insult. I appreciate that. Well, you know, but but you know, I think <laughs> I think where we're at right now is uh, is good enough. So, Mark, what are some of the uh, the details behind this 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 shift, this announcement from Apple? So it's coming with iOS 17.4, which is going to be out probably in about uh, two two to three weeks from now. And what's happening is that any new podcasts that are uploaded to the platform are going to be automatically transcribed by AI. So it's not a human being; it's computer generated, and and they're pretty accurate. Now, the backside of this is that the back catalog isn't going to be available right away with transcripts, so okay. they're going to be doing that over time. So it's an interesting addition to the new feature, and as you, you mentioned right at the top there, um, you know, the fact that they're adding transcripts is a, is a major leap forward. It's not, they're not the first to do it. You know, Spotify announced a while back that they were doing it as well, and I think other platforms are going to follow suit, but I think that's the important part, is that Apple is kind of leading the pack here and letting other people realize this is something they should be doing. Yeah, there's no doubt that when Spotify or Apple does something or Google jumps, the rest of the industry is going to follow. Like that's just that's just the way that it goes. What is the bigger picture right now in regards to automated transcription? Like you say, Spotify has had it out yeah. for about a year now. Uh, YouTube was touting automated transcription for a while. Facebook's talked about it too. What's the bigger picture? The, the bigger picture here is just really just making it accessible from the start. And this is, if you talk to any of these companies, they talk about accessibility in their DNA. And that is making sure that when you come into the platform, if you're a new podcaster, Instead of saying, should I be doing this? It's, yes, you should be doing this. Yeah. It's setting that trend and saying from the start, you should be doing this and not making it a question. I'm at a lot of podcaster forums, podcaster editor groups, and people ask themselves, should I be doing transcripts? And people debate it. And I'm like, why are you debating this? Of course you should be doing this. This is the point. You need to make these audio forms accessible to anybody, and there are people that can't listen to it. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me on that front. Uh, transcripts yeah. on podcasts are something that should just be standard like that Absolutely. should just be the standard I put together a little demo of how it actually works and I can walk you yeah, through that yeah, which yeah. is really please, cool please please um, so we'll put it up now and it's really cool so obviously you launch the podcast app on the bottom left hand corner there's a little caption button you press that and as the audio is playing it does that whole scroll while you go so it's like that button you know ball bouncing on. The cool thing is it goes full screen, and then anytime you want, you can hit the search button on the bottom of the screen, and it brings up a search window where you can type in any text you want, no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, the, the word Dave or the word, <laughs> you name it. You hit that button, and you can search it, and it'll find it throughout the entire script. That is something I think that is really pivotal, because a lot of platforms let you, let you, you know, see the transcript, but don't necessarily let you search through it, which is kind of interesting. Right, right. So that's a, that, that's a that, big distinction. It is a very big distinction, because you can find exactly what you're looking for. And if you tap on different areas of the text, it'll jump to that portion of audio as well. So they really are setting the bar pretty high in terms of how they're doing it. And I can only imagine how other
other people are going to try and copy it, and how it empowers podcasters to make sure they get those transcripts. Yeah, get make their content more accessible, which exactly. again, like at the core value, it's written on our wall, right? It's written on the exactly. wall at AMI inclusion, right? That's a big that's a bit that's a big part of it. Uh, Mark, I think what you laid out there. What's really important is that it's over and above. It's setting the new standard, right? You yeah. and I had this big conversation about Apple last week, maybe chasing their tail or chasing the pack. This sounds like a leader kind of policy shift. They tend to find something that they can really do well and do it properly and release it when they're doing it well and doing it properly. You know, the one thing I wanted to mention, too, is that, you know, yes, AI is transcribing it, but you as a podcaster have the power to go in and upload your own version of the transcript. So if you get it professionally transcribed after the fact, you can go on and upload that. It's not limited to just what's there. And it doesn't cost you anything to do it. As long as you're part of the podcasting platform mm -hmm. on Apple, mm -hmm. you can go control that. So they're definitely definitely leading when it comes to this. Mark, let's shift gears here a little bit. Sure. You're in studio today uh, to hang out with me. You're also also in studio for Access Tech Live. Mm -hmm. So let's do the cross-promotional okay, stuff first, and then I'm going to bother you as to why you're actually in Toronto. <laughs> um, what's coming up on Access Tech Live at noon today? So funny enough, we're talking not about podcasts, but audiobooks. We're going to be joined oh, by Ramya, who I think you know. Uh, <laughs> Jacob Szymanski is going to be joining us, and, and some in studio, some not. And we're going to be talking about audiobooks. I'm actually going to, I haven't told them this, I'm going to be putting them to the test. I'm going to play them some samples of AI and human voices no and see if they can figure out what's what, because that's how far I think think we've come along with the technology, and I think we might be at the point where you could possibly use an AI voice to actually narrate some of these. Oh my gosh, I love it when you guys mm. play a game on the show. <laughs> it's just so much more fun. Yeah, Ramya and Jacob are just like fabulous, both on the air and oh, behind yeah. the scenes, so I think that's going to be an amazing edition of Access Tech Live at noon Eastern time. Mark, the bigger question, why on earth would a Montrealer come to Toronto? Why would you leave I mean, the comfy confines of the best city <laughs> in the country to come to this heckhole? It's not for smoked meat, and it's not for bagels, I promise you that. Um, NHL also Start. I, I, as you know, in my other life, uh, I work for SiriusXM and other companies, and we do broadcasts around all the NHL events, specifically All Star, the draft, and it's in Toronto. So we're here this week and doing some broadcasts from the convention center, doing some stuff from the arena. By the way, that arena, I got lost five times yesterday. I have no <laughs> idea where anything is. But but celebrating, obviously, the you know the the the, the little break in the All Star in the NHL season and uh, having fun with everything that goes on with the All Star. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun. Yeah, the game itself is a little bit for children but yeah. all the, but all but all the stuff around it is kind of awesome I was just yeah. in a Brock in the segment before 2009 in Montreal I was just, just a degenerate loser who took part in the partying because I was in my early yeah. 20s and Understood. it just seemed appropriate and then flash forward to 2012 I'm now working in the media going to media yeah. events on the total flip side of it also still being a degenerate and partying but like it is, in a different it's, context it's fun Dave you know to go to the fanfare it's at the convention center all weekend so if you're in the area um, I'm not shilling tickets here if you want to go go if you don't want to go go but don't, but just to be able to walk and see the trophies and take your time with it and really absorb all that history. I know you've got the Hockey Hall of Fame here, but it's different in this setting because everybody around you is celebrating and you meet people from different parts of town, fans of different teams, et cetera, et cetera. It's a lot of fun. Oh, fantastic. Hey, Mark, I want you to have a great time while you're here in the building today. Have a Thank lovely you. time in the city over the weekend. Safe travels back to Montreal and always appreciate your perspective on technology. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. That's Mark Aflalo. He is the host of Access Tech Live. You can find that show Thursdays at noon on AMI television. It's a fantastic show. You don't want to miss it. Speaking of fantastic shows, The Pulse this weekend on AMI audio continues their three part series on accessible fashion.
with the uh, founder of Eily Design, a brand that utilizes Braille on its clothing. That's The Pulse weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Of course, you can find that on your favorite podcasting platform, or you can head over to the YouTube machine. Coming up next, the coming-of-age film Didi made its debut at Sundance. Michael McNeely has a review of the flick. But first, here is the Paris Sport Update with Greg Westlake. Welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. A monumental moment in Canadian Paralympic sports history took place last week in Ottawa when it was announced that starting at the 2024 Paris Games, athletes will begin receiving payments for winning medals at the Paralympics. Competitors can now earn $20,000 for gold, $15,000 for silver, and $10,000 for a bronze. With a $4 million donation from entrepreneur Sanjay Malavia and other funding secured by the Canadian Paralympic Committee and their philanthropic partner, the Paralympic Foundation of Canada, Paralympians now receive the same medal bonus enjoyed by the Olympians. From funding to the field of play, Canada's Paralpine stars continued the dash to the podium in Vaisonnet, Switzerland, as World Cup season marched on. Alexis Goumont of Gatineau, Quebec, reached the podium for the 12th consecutive time in the standing class, while Kyle Erickson began the year by winning three medals in his first three races in the visually impaired category. In para-Nordic skiing action, Canada captured six medals at the season-opening World Cup event in Toblock, Italy. Marco Rentz captured gold in the men's standing 10-kilometer classic and silver in the mass start. Brittany Hudak won silver in the women's standing 10-kilometer and bronze in the mass start while Derek Zaplatinsky collected bronze in both races in the men's sitting category. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The 2024 Sundance Film Festival wrapped up over the weekend. One film in particular has critics buzzing, a coming-of-age movie called Didi, directed by Sean Wang. It won the U.S. Dramatic Audience Award at this year's festival, and just a couple of days ago, it was bought by Focus Features. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely attended one of the screenings and has a review. Michael's next to me in studio alongside his intervener, Jillian. Hey, good morning, Michael. Nice to chat with you once again. Good morning. How are you? Michael, I'm excellent. I love me a coming-of-age story. I just think it's such a wonderful style of storytelling. What's the premise behind this one? Well, I'm going to describe it to you, and then I'll drop some facts. Um, Chris Wan is in grade 8, and he's just about to go to grade 9. So he has a lot of anxieties and a lot of concerns about whether or not he will be popular enough in high school just to survive. Mm. And he is also from a Taiwanese-American family, meaning that his mother, at least, is an immigrant from Taiwan. So he's dealing with a lot of cultural issues and challenges. And now for the facts. Sean Wan is the director. Isaac Wan is the actor, but they're not related. They, um, Sean found Isaac on, on the street for casting. Um, and Isaac is an amazing choice, by the way. I hope he goes far. And further to that, um, Chris Wan, it may be related or it may be um, based on Sean's childhood. 
and Sean was a child in approximately 2008 when the story was taking place, mm. so it's loosely based on that. Furthermore, to cement that idea, Sean used his childhood home for many of the scenes oh, in this wow. film. Why do you think it resonated with the audience? I mean, it's picking up awards, it's being bought by Focus Features. Why do you think it resonated with people? I think for a long time, we've had coming-of-age films, mostly with white, white children coming of age. And this time, we get to see a person of color and their challenges with fitted in in a multi-cultural society. I think that resonates with the audiences the most, because like I was thinking when I watched this film, in Kingston, I mostly grew up with the white people, but that's not the case for a lot of others that I would know now in Toronto. Many people who went to school in Toronto would have had many friends of different colors and races. So I think that's reflective of in this, in this film. What did you take away from what the film had to say about friendship and fitting in? Well, as we know from psychology, um, when you're a teenager or even a preteen, you start to look at your friends more as a, as a source of direction in your life than your own parents or parent, or even guardians, if you were adopted. Um, and sometimes that can lead you astray, especially if you have a bad choice in friends or if, you, if you're under the influence of some really unethical decision-making friends. I think here in this film, we see Chris having two different friendship groups, which may seem like you've seen this before, but it's actually a little bit different, mm. because his first set of friends are more or less the ones that he's grown up with, and the second set of friends are some of the cool kids that he's trying to fit into. I think the kids are a little bit older, and this is actually getting Chris's passion for skateboarding and for filmmaking, which is why I think it's Sean all along. Um, those older friends are sort of a bad influence, but surprisingly, they ask Chris to be nicer to his mother, which is rather surprising, because you don't think the cool kids would tell you to be nicer to your mom. But that's more or less where this film is going, and it makes sense, because, as I mentioned, a lot of a lot of different cultural experiences are involved in this film, and many of those cultural experiences prioritize relationships with your parents. The controversial opinion of be nicer to your mother, I, you know, that's one, that one that's uh, it's always going to resonate with folks. What did the movie have to say about family dynamics? To be nicer to your mother. Um, <laughs> but I think what's really interesting is that Joan Jen, who you may know from Twin Peaks, um, she plays... She plays Chris's mother, and she's an artist, and she's trying to, you know, make it professionally. And this is interesting, too, because in a lot of coming-of-age films or a lot of films about immigrant families, you don't really know a lot about the parents or what they were trying to do. I think uh, Chris is from a single-parent household. We're not really exactly sure what happened to the father. But the mother is always there. She's trying to be supportive. She has a great sense of humor, which is also different in a lot of immigrant family movies. And I really enjoy laughing um, a lot with, with Joan's scenes. But the, the laughs, of course, as we've explained, also make the emotions more devastating. And 
There's a part, as I probably mentioned, where Chris is not nice to his mother, and that is painful to watch, mm. especially when you realize, being an adult, you and me, we realize that the mother has done a lot to try and make this family work. Ooh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have guilt in my own life about maybe how I treated my parents when I was a teenager and in my early teens and early 20s. No, it's very, um, I could probably say the same thing, but I'll save that for my test chat with my parents, <laughs> yeah. which will come in about five minutes from now. Um, but uh, Chris also has an older sister, and they, they are so mean to each other at first. It's insane. I don't even want to tell you half of the things they do, but it's just beyond the pale. Mm. But the sister is going to university, and when she accepts that she's going to university and she's not going to be around with Chris anymore, she starts being nicer to Chris. And that actually makes a lot of sense. It's a, I love the character arcs that you get to see in all the characters, and not just Chris, because everyone has an emotional storyline behind them and their actions make sense in the little that you know of them. Who do you think would be interested in Dee Dee? I think... Diddy should be interesting for anyone who has a family and who wants to know more about childhood development and who may be sort of scarred from their growing pains. It's very interesting because this film is based in 2008, so you get the, you get the, um, the plot, you get the storyline, you get the, the set details are all, all reflective of that time. And so... It's a period piece, but it's a very recent period piece, because mm -hmm. most of the time we have period pieces from 1800 and 1900, but this is just, you know, 20 years ago almost. And you have AIM, which was the instant messaging service, so you get to quench on all those, uh, <laughs> all those hot emojis and, you know, those away messages, like, I'm away from my desk, I'm doing my homework, hit me up by BBM or whatever. So it's just, it's a mind trip. And you know what, it's fascinating because they found a way to recreate a 2008 internet. Yeah. So I wouldn't really ask them questions about how they did that. They did that very painstakingly. Maybe they used the Wayback Machine, I don't know. But all the websites are from 2008, and people have MySpace bios, and you know, it's just a different time. Yeah, take me back. Take me back to a time when you had to uh, pay to receive a text message, when receiving a text message cost 10 cents, and you had to tell oh. people, stop texting me. It's true. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's... I can relate to it even though I'm a little bit older. In 2008, I was going into my third year, I think my third year, university. Um, or maybe my second year. I'll do the math later. But um, that's uh, uh, quite a few years older than Chris and quite a few years older than Sean, who is really impressive as a director. Um, Sean has also been nominated for an Oscar in uh, Best Documentary Short, which I'm sure I'll talk about when we talk about the Oscars. He did a, he did a documentary, uh, rightfully so, on his two grandmothers, and his two grandmothers were still alive to hear the Oscar nomination, and apparently they had a wholesome, a wholesome response on social media. Michael, uh, let's move away from Didi and move to Sundance more generally. How did you feel the online portion of the festival did this year? I think it did well. I just have reservations about the short amount of time that we were given online. 
We were given five days, and I spent the first day mostly dealing with tech issues, so that leaves about four days to enjoy things. And other people in person would have had ten days, so I'm just a little bit jealous of how much time they had. And sometimes when you're watching a lot of movies all at once, you're kind of not in the mood to watch this other great movie, because yeah. you're just not in the right mindset. But you know the movie is great, and you just feel bad, or at least I feel bad, about not being able to enjoy it for as such. Which is why DD was such a great surprise, you know. It was a movie that kind of resonated with how I was feeling at the time, and not because I felt like I had to watch a movie. So, um, I would urge anyone with a film festival that's doing an online presence to make sure you've got some flexibility with your online windows for watching movies, and more time is always better. And yeah. even if, you know, even if you have to say to people, well, we'll give you this movie again in two weeks, or we'll give you this movie again in three weeks, that's still, I'd still take that over, just having four days and you're done. Yeah, it's one of these things where you're very passionate about film and you want to take all these things in, but it becomes very condensed. And as you say, it's hard to kind of get in the moment when, you've, when you're on your third or fourth movie of the day. Well, I mean, I have to think about my saint, Roger Ebert, and he complained, famously, he complained that Tiff had too many movies. And so you might wonder why somebody would complain about that, but it makes perfect sense because our job is to watch them all. Yeah. So you have to, you can't expect us to watch 150 movies in four days, or whatever it may be. And, you know, I still think about Roger and how he would go to the movie, he would go to TV and he would go to Sundance, and he would sit there in the front row, and he would have a little light, which, of course, people complained about. They complained about his little desk light, and he would turn the light on in the middle of the screening, and he would write his notes. But he said, this is how I do it. You take it or leave it. Yeah. So I always take some lessons from him. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. One of the greatest of all time, Roger Ebert. Hey, Michael, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. You too. And uh, I will wish all the children growing up to have happy and wonderful childhoods that we then can make movies on. Wow, controversial takes here with Michael McNeely, wanting the kids to be happy. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely with a review of Didi, directed by Sean Wang. The film made its debut at Sundance. Our release date has not yet been announced. Coming up next, how do you feel about brands and stores popping up inside of other brands and department stores? Alex Smythe will pose this roundtable question to myself, Nizreen, and Ramia. Try to have a little bit of fun rethinking the uh, commercial and retail space. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. An update from a conversation about an hour ago. Megan Gilmore, reporter for Canadian Affairs, stopped by to offer a little bit of context on medical assistance in dying and the expansion of MAID to people whose sole affliction is a mental illness. The Liberal government has now officially announced they are delaying any expansion of eligibility of medical assistance in dying to
until 2027. That news just uh, coming across the wire here in the last couple of minutes. Let's look to the future, not all the way to 2027, but 2 p.m. this afternoon when Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves on AMI-tv. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and is going to tell you what's coming up at 2 o'clock. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Yep, it's the Thursday edition. Kelly and I are back together again. And uh, Michael Fair is talking about the accessible game Conjury and another game called Dawncaster. So he's been highly anticipating these games. I'm curious about why. Maybe they've been recently made accessible. Uh, also, we're talking about a Sesame Street character on X that asked, how are you doing? And got an earful, apparently. So Grant Hardy's going to talk about it on <laughs> What in the World. Uh, plus, what are some basic rules to... Think about when planning packed lunches. Mary Mamalidi's got us covered on our food chat. Okay, once again, a wide-ranging edition of Kelly and Rumia. No doubt Variety. about it. Okay, Rumia, you're in the building, but you're on the other side of the wall. But don't go yeah. anywhere because Alex Smythe has a roundtable topic here for you, myself, and Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Alex, what caught your attention? Yeah, Dave, so there's been several stories recently about stores and brands making returns to Canada. So uh, they, they've taken a different approach from what would have been done in the past or reestablishing, you know, storefronts and things like that and big uh, brick and mortar kind of locations. Like, let's take HMV, for instance. They are returning to Canada, but they're going to be setting up shop within Toys R Us locations. Zellers, as we know, they're carving out space within the bay itself. And even Service Ontario is partnering with Staples to open up locations within Staple retail stores. So all this is a part of a new trend, or maybe it's just a kind of revitalization of what a mall concept used to be in my mind. It's that one-stop shopping. And so I wanted to bring this idea, this topic forward to the round table, get everyone's kind of thoughts and takes on it. And first off, let's start on the idea of these types of brands coming back and opening up within other stores. And so Ramya, let's start with you on this. How do you feel when a brand like HMV or, or Zellers is opening up within another store? I like it. Um, I get used to having options all around me in a mall. So I used to live across from a mall and uh, I was very like starting to think, oh man, it would be awesome if they just put a grocery store in here. It'd be awesome if I had my dentist and my doctor and everything in here. Because as you said, the intention of a mall is kind of to have everything there. But often all you get really is retail. Now, I'm not even sure if that's necessarily accurate, but I do think it gets a little complicated for a person like me, a, a blind or low vision person, to travel around the mall and find different locations of things. Like maybe there are three banks in there, but I don't remember where everything is. So um, maybe this is just like a me problem. But uh, <laughs> I do like, I do like, I heard about the Service Ontario locations opening up, and I think that that kind of thing is really helpful just to have like you said, Alex, the the options available to you, but particularly grocery stores. I really, really wanted a grocery store to open in the mall while I was living there. Then I moved, and then they opened up a grocery store, and I was thinking, damn it, just missed it. Yeah, Nisreen, what, what do you think about that, getting more and more brands and places into one stop? Kind of like what we used to see as a mall making a comeback here, but, you mm -hmm. know, Service Ontario and, and Staples and Toys R Us and HMV maybe sort yeah. of rethinking commercial and retail space. 
Uh, that's the thing. I agree with Remya. It, the intention behind the mall is a one-stop shop. Like that's where you want to get everything from, wh whether it's the dentist or Forever Twenty One or whatever it may be. Um, but dentist. I do find it confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, whether it's it's a like a, a a clinic, a small clinic that you need real quick. Um, but I do find it confusing when brands are within a store. So when I was in the bay the other day, I saw a big Zellers sign and I was like, wait, did I hit what? the bay or did I hit Zellers? Uh yeah, it was a it was a big Zellers sign within the bay. And I was I was confused of what that meant. Well, well, um, it's because it's because HBC Hudson Bay Company owns Zellers. Like that's been deliberate and intentional when relaunching the brand. They own yeah. the brand and they're putting it in their own store to sell you nostalgia. I figured that was it, but um, like you know, the moment of I'm like, where, where am, where am I at this point? So I, I do find it confusing when there are brands within uh, like other stores. Too. Alex, you brought the topic to the table. I, I'm really into this idea of synthesizing the amount of travel I need to do to get things done. So I'm like, I'm really keen on the idea of one-stop shopping, but not just in the way we think of a big box store, right? I, I'm thinking about everything, something way more holistic. Like Nazreen said, the dentist, and I kind of laughed, but it's true, right? Like, can I go somewhere where I can buy some jeans that fit me? Unlikely, by the way, unlikely to find jeans that are gonna fit me, I'm an oddly shaped man. But <laughs> how could I buy jeans, maybe get a doctor's appointment, pick up a prescription, and maybe go play like indoor bocce ball inside a mall, mm -hmm. like I'm into it. Yeah, same here. Like, I, I, I think there's two different elements to this. Like, there's the idea, obviously, of the mall experience overall. But I, I think even on a more micro and specific level, the idea of this having a new brand within an existing storefront, like the Zellers within the Bays, like the H&V coming to Toys R Us, I think it, it creates these interesting partnerships. Obviously, the Zellers and Bay connection is is clear because they're, they're owned by the same company. But, like, even something like the H&V where it's, like, it's music paired with toys. It's like, what are these types of connection points that we can create that it's not necessarily developing a whole mall space, but we're giving up some of one retail space within a location that you have one secured rent that you're you're kind of splitting that with. Okay, now here may be also a similar interest available. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be something like, you know, things like pop culture, video games, comic books, like those types of things start to kind of find a way into other similar style locations like a Toys R Us, like something like that, where you can kind of have that cross-pollination of interest. But on the, on the greater scale, yeah, I would love a mall that is much more specific to what people want day to day. It's not all just a clothing brand. It's not all just a knickknacks. <laughs> like, do we really need 12 stores that have yeah. home decor and design things? It's like, you, you really don't need that many. But that was really what the mall experience kind of became between that and fashion clothes in like mm -hmm. the mid to late 2010s. And that's kind of led to a bit of the decline in interest in the malls. I so, just want to add something. Please. Uh, this is why I like, I love like Walmart in general, where they have a pharmacy, they have food, they have retail, and this is a one-stop shop for me. This is a perfect example of a one-stop shop for me. So brands like that, that is what makes it easier for somebody to shop for, whether it like this is one store, but if it's in a mall, it's the same thing. If you have a mall next to you and it has all those things it's perfect place. That's how mm -hmm. I think about Walmart across the street. I have a pharmacy. I have 
uh, whatever I need, food or or dessert or uh, clothes, that that's something just it's it's convenient for somebody. I, I never thought I'd live the day where people start talking glowingly about the Walmart experience. Like 25 years oh ago, it's killing local retail. And now because Not of Amazon, it's like, everybody go support Walmart. Go support the Walton family, even though like half their employees in the United States are on food stamps because they don't pay them a living wage. You know, like, come on mm. now. Uh, but I don't want to get, I don't want to wander down that road because I'm going to get sued again. Let's uh, talk again. about, uh, again, let's tell, I had a long talk with my lawyer on Saturday. Uh, let's, let's talk about this. This idealized space, right? You know, the, the this uh, this office is built uh, around an outdoor mall, and it's irritating, and it's poorly run, and it drives me up the wall and totally bonkers. But if I was to build a perfect mall space, Ramya, I would want to make sure it's not just about shopping. I want one of those Service Ontario locations. I want a Service Canada location where I can go renew my passport. I want there to be a gym. I want there to be a bank. I want there to be a clothing store, and there better be Heck some yeah. good food courts too you know what i'm saying like i want to go have fun at the mall definitely like you know the most disappointing thing is when you go to a mall you're there all day but then you can't run one errand because they don't have it at the mall and i think basically that's what we're all pointing out here right you want so to be true. able to do everything there there's a mall in scarborough that um includes like a bowling alley and uh, a bunch of food and it's a local mall it's small people don't you know it's not a tourist attraction but the people in that neighborhood they don't have to go outside that mall to do anything that the fun that you're talking about dave as well as the food they got some really good froyo there and uh the bank and the gym and whatever like everything that you point out and i'm thinking that's exactly what i'm all supposed to be yeah, that's ex like that's exactly what a mall is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a destination, not simply a place that has a magnetic pull of money from your wallet. Nizreen, yeah. what's your ideal mall that isn't Walmart? Uh, <laughs> um, I hate that I brought it up now, but uh, Remya, <laughs> you pointed something out. Uh, having just going shopping and you have one stop that the mall doesn't have and you have to run another errand and 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 the motivation just goes downhill so i just i i think banks are very important to include into a mall i feel like i always need to go to a bank and it's never at the mall <laughs> yeah. i like that one all right alex what's uh what's uh smythe fairview's ideal mall here well, you know, I, I feel kind of privileged because uh, the mall right by me has all the banks in them. So I, I, I consider that. A I, I would like to see more of the public service side of things beyond like the Service Ontario beside, uh, service camera. Even things like what about like a, a small library? You know, oh, something yeah. like that oh, yeah. where you have that kind of aspect to it where it's not all about getting, as you say, Dave, the money from your wallet. You know, have things like that where it's just a bit more enjoyable. It's it's a bit more of a less stressful place, but it could be even a quick like, oh, I need to drop off a book again. Well, I can drop it off at this like location that. or something like that. You know, I, I always enjoyed with West Edmonton Mall is always a massive space, but you know, you had that what fun. What does in that there. mall you had not have? I, exactly. It has everything. It has a skating rink. It has, you know, like the Sea Lion Show. It has uh, roller coasters. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be on that scale, but some sort of fun, no. whether it's a movie theater in oh, there, yeah. whether Big it's time. a bowling alley, you know, having the gym in, in a certain section, like really creating a whole whole service center would be huge. And not only having fast food in, in like the, the food court, but having real actual sit down dining restaurants, restaurants that you can have an elevated food experience. That's what I want. 
You're like describing it. Scarborough Town Center. I think. <laughs> uh, well, I think yeah, I, I, I think I think that's like that's the fair question to wrap up here because there are still malls. Like the like the the notion of the death of the mall is a little bit overwritten because they still exist and there's still some good ones. I actually love the Manulife Center in downtown Toronto at yes. uh, at um, at Eglin not Eglinton at, uh, at 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 Bay and uh, uh, Bloor. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. <laughs> Big Bruce McLaren in my ear, basically putting that one together for me. I love it. There's like there's there's a great bookstore, there's cool cafes, there's an awesome movie theater, like it's just an amazing place in a cool part of town. And and I, I like I like going there. I, I, I like going there. It's cool. So, Rumi, I think you might have tipped your hand already. What's what's your favorite mall? Scarborough Town Center. And it was a very much a local, like everyone in Scarborough goes to this mall when I was younger. Now they've really scaled it up. So they've got that nice food court. They've upgraded uh, the like the architecture, I guess, the building a little bit, just in general, the aesthetics, I guess. And what I love about it actually is the surrounding streets around the mall. So you, if there's something not in the mall, but you want to go for that restaurant or you want to go for that gym, you just got to cross the street and they yeah. got everything. Like they built it around the mall. So that whole neighborhood is just vibing. I love that. A vibe, a full neighborhood vibe. Nazreen, favorite mall. I used to go to Dixie Mall in Mississauga. It doesn't. It didn't have all the things that you know we're mentioning today. But in the past, as a, somebody, as a child, you know, I had so many games it had um fast food but also a dining space like it had so many things that all of our community went to and Love i think it. that was the best part because you know, uh, uh, putting our community together is just important love it alex you got to be quick on this favorite mall I think West Edmonton Mall is hard to beat. It has literally everything. No other mall you can go and just enjoy a roller coaster, see sea lions, and, and go get your shopping and your food uh, needs met. I mean, West Edmonton show. Mall. And, and you can also stay there overnight with the hotel that's attached yeah. to it. So I could be. Yeah. Hey, big shout out, though, to Metrotown in, uh, in the Vancouver area, though, as well. Metrotown's a good mall, too. And shout out to my friend Pete Patipko, who hosts a radio show out of the West Edmonton Mall every day. So, you know, there's cool stuff going on out there all over the place. That's it for today's show. Until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.